Hi everyone, welcome to Tech Talks. Today we have Glyne. She's going to tell us a bit about the IDI. And so Glyne, would you like to tell us a bit about you? Sure. Um, so happy to be here, Joyce. Thanks for having me. And uh, so my name is Glyne Roberts McCabe. I am the founder of a company here in Toronto called The Roundtable. And what we do is we're a group coaching company. I like to say we help leaders navigate change, disruption, and growth. So we've had a lot of that in this last year. Um, and the way we do that is helping as leaders get to certain kind of, I guess, changes in their career where they have to take on more scope and more responsibility. We help them understand what behaviors matter at that stage of their career and then how they can adapt. So we do all of our programming in groups and small groups and leaders learning from each other. We're all about kind of the collective. And the IDI, which we're going to talk about today, is one of the tools that we use to help leaders understand the underlying motivators under their behavior so that it's easier for them to create action plans that they can actually sustain because we know how hard it is to change behavior. So when we get underneath and, and see what's going on below the surface, we can help them build um, plans that actually work. That sounds fantastic. And so... Glyne has books that she's written that I'll link below. And so for those of you who are curious, she identifies as a NP in the Myers-Briggs and also as a type seven in the Enneagram. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's me. Great. And now it's time to learn about the IDI. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, I'm excited to share with everybody the IDI. Um, so IDI, Individual Directions Inventory, developed by a group in the U.S. called Management Research Group. They're this little boutique assessment firm. They have a whole suite of assessments. And the big, I suppose, thing that they focus in on in the whole world of assessment are insights that drive action. So what their, their tools are really designed to do is to help people in organizations shift behavior um, and they have career planning tools and all that kind of thing as well to help people find careers that they love. Um, but it's really about this insight to action model. And so the IDI, um, the way that uh, you can use this tool is you can use it in career development with people who are really looking to understand uh, what kind of careers will give them satisfaction or why their job isn't working for them. Um, and we use it as a baseline for when we're helping leaders who have to work on a behavior, we pair it with um, the behavioral 360 tool that MRG also has to really get, we call it, we want people to identify their big bang for the buck behavior. And so to do that, we want to take a look at What's the behavior you need to work on? And what's your energy for actually changing that behavior and sustaining a new behavior? So that's where the IDI fits in for us. Um, we also use it a lot with teams and groups so that we can really help um, teams and groups understand their collective energy and how does that either help them achieve their goals or get in the way of their goals. So um, I'll give you a bit of a kind of a walkthrough of the tool itself and the language. And, um, and then I'm happy, Joyce, to kind of dive into some specific ways that, you know, you apply the IDI or stories, things like that. Um, so 
individual directions inventory measure 17 motivational uh, variables, behaviors, or not behaviors, but energies that we have. Um, when people get the report, it's based on a scale of 5% to 95 to 99%. Uh, what's unique about the way MRG does their assessments is they do a semi-ipsative format. So it's forced choice. So it takes away that Likert scale rating if I feel this from one to seven, and it actually forces people to choose out of three statements, the most like, the least like. And so what you get from that is like this really interesting range um, across this 5% to 95% that shows what did they select more and what did they select less? And the questions all sort of um, load on emotional satisfaction you get from certain situations. So um, what they found over the years is that when you score very, very high, so 85% and above, or very, very low, 15% below, those motivational energies tend to be a little bit more hardwired. And you can probably, I know for myself, when I look at my scores that are 85% and above, I can look into my childhood, I can see the things that were valued in my family, I can see the things that I was praised for as a kid, or I can see where my family didn't do this and I became very motivated to do the opposite. So you see that a lot. And then on the, the low end, um, it's where we don't have a lot of energy for that kind of um, activity. And so we tend to shy away from it, right? Both the high and the low ends are where our um, attention either goes or disappears. And it's also where our biases form. So when we don't have a lot of energy for things, often we don't have patience for it. We're not interested in it. We, it's kind of like we put our fingers in our ears and go, I'm not listening. I don't want to hear this. This isn't interesting to me. And on the high end, we think everybody is equally as jazzed about this as we are, right? Um, when you score 35 below 70 above, that's telling us that you actually have a lot of energy from this generally. Anything between that sort of 35 to 70 score, I call that the swimming lane. It means it's very, very situational. So you really have to look at the situation and go, yeah, maybe have more energy for this if these are the conditions that are at play, but otherwise not so much. So often when people get their scores, that's what we help them unpack is, yeah, maybe you're low on this, but it's because it's really where you are interested. It's very finite. Um, so that's the idea. So I'll, I'll, shall I walk you through each of the the um, the motivational categories and and the motivators under each one? Give a quick descriptor. Would that be helpful, Joyce? That would be amazing. Okay, yeah. let's look at each one. So um, we've got. Uh, six big categories. And uh, the first one, affiliating, really relates to the degree of close, intimate, personal relationships that we like to have. And so under that category are motivators like giving, giving, if you're high giving, you love helping people, you help everybody, whether they want your help or not, you just love giving and helping. People who score lower on giving may be more selective about who they give to. If you ask them for help, they they could be right there with you helping, but they're not necessarily going to be super proactive about helping everybody. And that really is the big thing about high giving people is they will feel uh, example, rolling up to a stop sign, high giving people actually feel a little guilty that they're holding up everybody else behind them. That's how much they want to like help other people. Um, so giving is one motivational energy. 
receiving is another. So that's the energy you get from being helped. So having other people help you, um, high, high receiving people love to be in warm, supportive environments. They're comfortable, um, you know, in that kind of situation where people are offering help. Um, lower receiving people may have been taught that, you know, hey, you need to stand on your own two feet. You need to do things your own way. They may perceive asking for help as being a sign of weakness. Um, that could have been messages that you know, when they were being brought up, were in their childhood. So giving and receiving the first two. Belonging is how much energy you get from being part of a group. So if you suffer extreme FOMO all the time, chances are maybe you're a high belonging person. Low belonging people, I have a brother who's fifth percentile belonging. Um, I remember he moved to the UK when he was 12. And then he left the UK when he was 19. He never kept in touch with anybody. The, of his friends over there. And all of his from my mother used to always complain about him that his his friends always had to do all the work. He never did any of the work. Um, that is him. That is how he doesn't really get much energy being part of groups, any kind of groups or even friendships, right? Um, I have a CEO that I, I worked with who was also fifth percentile belonging. And when I asked him how he felt about team building exercises, he said, Oh, my God, I absolutely hate those things. So you know, that belonging piece, um, you know, how much energy do you be, you know, uh, get from being uh, in groups with other people. And then expressing high expressing people love, you know, they're very um, keen to kind of share their feelings about absolutely everything. And, and, you know, probably, I'm coaching a, a person right now whose boss wants her to be much more vulnerable and she doesn't demonstrate enough trust. And and when I got her IDI score, she's about 45th percentile expressing. He is 95th, pile, 95th percentile expressing. So he just doesn't feel like he gets enough from her. Um, and so again, lower expressing people, they just don't feel the need to unpack everything in front of everybody. Um, this is not really, sometimes people think of expressing around introversion, extroversion. Um, I don't find that. I've got a woman on my team who's quite high expressing and she is an introvert, but she's very comfortable talking about herself, her challenges, the things that she struggles with. Um, she will put that out there. And that's really, to me, more of the expressing, how much you're really uh, candid about uh, aspects of your life. Um, so I'll pause there. Joyce, is there any questions that are coming up for you around any of this that you, you want to kind of dig in deeper before I go on to the next um, grouping? This is amazing. No, no questions yet. <laughs> no? Okay, perfect. Well, jump in if you, you know, if I'm kind of speeding along and you want to, or, or if you see a, a logical Myers-Briggs connection, I would love to sort of hear that from you too. Um, okay, so let's talk about attracting. That's sort of how we gain attention towards ourselves in the world, you know, like how, how do we pull attention into us? So gaining stature is really about um, recognition, uh, can be public recognition, it can be status type things. So is uh, having a title important to you? Is driving a nice car important to you? Is dressing really well important to you? Um, stature, it's, it's how the world sees us. So it can be certifications. Um, it can be, uh, you know, doing advanced degrees, things like that, and, and getting motivational energy from that and, and liking, you know, people seeing you in a certain light. So um, some of the senior executives I work with, the title, the status, the car, the corner office, those are very important factors for them. 
people who are lower in gaining stature um, really don't get energy from that, you know, and, and when I notice that in the leaders I work with, leaders who are low gaining stature, often their employees will feel that they don't get enough recognition because those leaders don't really, you know, they don't care one way or the other. They get their what they gain from doing the work is the work itself often. And so they don't think about recognizing people as a result of that, right? So that's lower gaining stature. Entertaining, people who are high entertaining, they like being the center of this tension. They are the jokesters. They are the people who really gain a lot of energy from, you know, being that life of the party, that um, public persona. People lower on entertaining um, have less energy for that. I interestingly coached a guy once who was a corporate trainer, actually. So he spent the day at the front of the classroom um, training. And I said, boy, how are you at the end of the day? Like, and he was, oh, I'm totally exhausted. Whereas people who are high entertaining when they've been in front of a room full of people will usually be completely energized um, because they get so much from being in that spotlight. Whereas for him, that even though it was a huge part of his job, it was such a draining aspect of his job. What, what he got energy from was actually sharing knowledge Right. And so he had his energy in a different place. And I guess that's one thing I'll pause on the IDI for a second. Sometimes like we use this often for help to help people see where they get energy from within their jobs. But there's no one pathway to success. And just because you have low energy for something doesn't mean you can't do it. But what it might mean is that at the end of the day, if you've been working against your energy, you're going to be more tired. But, you know, we all have parts of our job that we have to do that. Um, you know, don't give us the same energy. Interestingly, that individual is now moved into a, a role where he's no longer doing as much classroom training and instead is architecting the learning programs for the comp the new company he's working for. And when I was talking to him recently, he's having a great time. He's, he's really happy. So um, I think, uh, you know, thinking about where we get our energy is, um, is just super helpful as we think about career choices, right? Um, so the next category, perceiving, I kind of like to call this left brain, right brain. So creating is the energy you get from idea generation. This is the P part, or maybe it's the NP part of Myers-Briggs, as we were talking about earlier, Joyce, you know, that um, high creating, uh, just throw me a brainstorming session any time of day, and I am there at that 95th percentile. People in the fifth percentile way less energy for that, way more energy for being action oriented. Um, they want to move forward and uh, just start getting things done. Um, interpreting energy, and probably I'm guessing you probably have a lot of people that uh, tune into this program that are high interpreting, they like to dig in, they get into the analytics of things, they really enjoy research, they love kind of they get energy from depth and and knowing things deeply um low interpreting people less center give me the top line i can move forward let's make a decision right so when we see people who are very low in creating and interpreting what i notice about those people is they tend not to be strategic thinkers they tend to be incredible they have a very incredible bias for action they really move forward, they move quickly. And their downfall is that often because they don't have a lot of energy for digging in and, and uh, you know, patience to hear all the details or, or to take some time to ideate new ideas, 
um, you know, they, they can often be caught blindsided because they didn't, you know, take that time. People who are very, very high on creating and interpreting, that's kind of an unusual com combination because you have that person who has the ability to both um, ideate, but also the depth to be able to, um, you know, see what's feasible, reasonable, and do that side of work as well. Myself, I'm very high on the creating, but I'm much lower on the interpreting. So I'll always get caught out because I haven't done enough thinking on things as I should. So um, that's sort of the perceiving bucket. So shall I keep going, Joyce, or you got um, observations that you want to share at this point? Yes. So affiliating, the giving category seems a lot like the type two Enneagram. Like it seems to be a slight correlation there. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. There is. Always, yeah, always wanting to like give is very type two. And attracting, mm -hmm. attracting sounds a bit like type three in the Enneagram. Mm -hmm. So liking that recognition, liking that other people notice that you're achieving something. Yeah. <laughs> I hear that my daughter is a type three. And I think that's absolutely bang on. Awesome. Yeah. And like you said, for the perceiving category, it seems like, you know, extroverted intuition <laughs> of the NPs is very yeah. for the creating. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Yeah. All right. So let's, should we look at the next bucket, which is mastering, which is what it sounds like, how we like to master our world and three categories here. So excelling. So excelling is that high bar. The people who are high excelling um, really get a lot of energy from making things better. And, and to, the, to the very high end, that 85% and plus, it's almost like nothing is ever good enough. So they have a very challenging time sometimes um, trusting other people um, to do as good a job as they would do. Um, very hard for them to actually see people that they think can do a good job. You know, like I, I, I find uh, high excelling leaders will often have frustrations with their direct reports. And I'm often saying to them, okay, you're the person here who's got these, this really, really high bar, you know, not everybody is as high, you know, has that same energy that you have. Um, but they really do. It's constantly about pushing themselves to exceptional results. Um, people who are lower on excelling, it doesn't mean that they don't like to excel, but they are much choosier about where they put that energy because high excelling people, it is across all aspects of their life. They have to be the best wife, the best husband, the best child, the best employee, the best parent teacher council person, the best, it is every part of their life. People who are lower on excelling are much, have a much easier time picking and choosing and they'll go, ah. Yeah, I'm not the greatest tennis player, but I just enjoy doing it as a hobby. I don't need to, you know, I'm not going to beat myself up for not being the best. Um, enduring is the amount of energy we get from really sticking at things, you know, like the the a little bit of it is about, you know, the greater the challenge, um, the more satisfaction we gain from gain from it. If something is too easy, we're going to be less excited about it. Um, lower enduring people have a much easier time walking away when they see the writing on the wall. I've seen high enduring people work for really horrible bosses um, because in a many, in a weird way, 
they're trying to figure out how they can outlast <laughs> the system, you know, and it's almost like they don't realize that that's the energy they're getting from this highly dysfunctional relationship. Um, whereas lower enduring people will um, easily see that this is not going in a good direction. I do not need to win. You know, I don't need to stick at this game. I'm moving on. Um, and there's certain combinations, like when we get further down, you know, you can see how these, like these things don't work in isolation. It's all related to different things. So if you're a high giving person and a high enduring person, maybe you stick with people longer than you should. You know, you, you don't end relationships when you should, um, because you're, you have that high caring and you're trying to help people and you think you can help and you're sticking at it. Right. Um, so that's, that's enduring. Um, and then the last one in this grouping is structuring. So people who love structuring, they're really about that process, putting things into a process, having, um, a system. I had a member on my team who's 95th percentile structuring. And she would say, when I'm really stressed out, I just go and organize a drawer. Um, I am fifth percentile structuring. And when I'm really stressed out, I put on comfy clothes, grab a bag of chips, and I watch Netflix. Like there is no organizing happening in my life. Um, so lower structuring people, you know, it's not that you don't like structure, you don't appreciate structure. I like things actually around me to be structured. My programs are pretty structured because I like it to be repeatable. But I don't follow the structure. That's the difference. So the um, my uh, creating energy uh, definitely overtakes uh, any need that any small need I have for structure. Uh, I like it for other people. Don't need it for myself. Um, so that process of making sure there's a plan um, is what's really important for people at that high end of that, and and people at the low end. Just again, it's it's just not. It's not something that's critical for them. They have to create structure. Usually I find low structure people, low energy structure people can come across as being really chaotic and disorganized. And, and particularly for senior people, that becomes a big liability. So we always have to figure out how do we help you make structure something that you don't have to think about um, because it becomes a barrier when you're trying to take on more scope um, as you go up uh go up the ranks of leadership in particular. What do you think, Joyce? Any comments on this section? Yeah, it's fascinating. So structuring might correlate a little bit to the Myers-Briggs judging and perceiving. Mm -hmm. So perceivers, they can make a plan, but then they'll toss it away last minute if they don't want it <laughs> or yeah. if it's not applicable at that moment. Exactly. Whereas like judges tend to follow through with the plans that they set. So yeah. that there's a slight correlation there. Yeah. Yes, and have a hard time shifting off the plan then, right? Yeah, like that's bad because it's they're 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 committed to it. That's where that's where it meant to go. Yeah, for sure. And so, um, if you're in a role which really requires you to be very structured, or you have to do a lot of repetitive tasks that would benefit from that, um, if you're a low structure person, you're really going to have to hack that because um, if not, you're going to you know drive yourself crazy with you know the amount of process that you're going to need to follow. So structuring is always one that. I find um, quite interesting. And when I've seen senior leaders, like before I get their IDI results and I'm hearing, you know, their boss talk about them or their direct reports talk about them. Sometimes when I hear people being described as micromanagers, often they're higher structure because they have a way that they want to see things being done. Right. And so that's how it correlates out sometimes to behaviors that we see that energy of wanting to know 
Um, and it's sort of tied into when we get into the maintaining category, um, there's an energy in there called stability, which is really about having predictability. And when you see a leader who's not only high structuring, but also high stability, that's that in many ways that that can become micromanaging energy because they want to know that everything is going the way it's supposed to go. Right. Um, the next group of motivators are the, it's under the bucket challenge and it sort of is kind of the way the energy we bring to achieve in the world, you know, like how do we, um, get results. And so the three under there maneuvering, winning and controlling. So when we look at maneuvering, people with high maneuvering energy get a lot of satisfaction from playing the game. They love looking for opportunities um, to, uh, whether it's um, get an advantage or move something through faster. So I always use the example of corporate politics. So a lot of people complain about politics at work because, oh, you have to have the meeting before the meeting and you have to do this and you have to align this person. People with high maneuvering actually enjoy that. So they're constantly figuring out, okay, who are the players? How can I get this aligned? What do I need to do? They're very good at influence and persuasion, typically in organizations. They're good at finessing relationships. Um, you can see that when you start layering in things like maneuvering, and then you go back up to the affiliating energy, you can see that if somebody was very low on affiliating energy, they weren't high giving, high receiving, high belonging, low expressing, but they're very high on maneuvering, how that could come across as very manipulative. Um, and then when we look at winning, if the winning energy is high, it really starts to add on that layer of um, the individual is in it for themselves, as opposed to a high maneuvering energy with a high winning energy combined with high affiliating energy is much more of a team energy. We're here to win. And they use that energy towards bringing the entire team along. Um, when you have the maneuvering and winning energy high and the, the affiliating slightly lower, it becomes more about the person's agenda and the person's objectives. Um, it's how other people feel that energy, right? It might not be the person's intention, but that's often the way the energy feels. So winning is what it sounds like. It's that you get a lot of energy from being competitive, from winning. Arguing is not arguing to you. It's a great, a great debate, right? Um, and uh, often high winning people will underestimate how that feels for people around them. I'm a high winning person and I'm married to a, a person who's fifth percentile winning. And so he will always... He, he can't, you know, he's all about harmony. People who are at the lower end of winning, they're all about harmony. And so, you know, for him, I can just think that we're having a fun debate and for him, it's an argument, right? And so I always have to manage that energy. When we drive in a car, um, I drive 95% of the time because when he is driving, I can't help myself, but I'll be like, um, let's take this route. Why are you in this lane? What's happening here? Right? It's just, it's really ridiculous. Um, but that is, that is that winning energy. And, um, so people will sometimes get their feedback and they'll be low winning and they'll say, no, but I like to win. I'm in sales. I love to win, but there's a, there's really a, is it okay. So maybe in that situation, you, um, you are enjoying the energy of winning, but do you need to do it when you're playing Clue with your eight-year-old? Do you need to do it when you're uh, at a stoplight and you're, park, you're beside somebody and you're thinking, 
Uh, you're not going to beat me out of this when this light goes green, right? Um, you're not Mario Andretti, you know, out of the stop gate. So um, I think that's really um, the the swing that we see in terms of, um, you know, the level of uh, energy that all of us bring to all aspects of our life. And that's what we always have to keep thinking about with, um, with these um, motivators. And then the last one in this set is controlling. I find this a very interesting one. Um, it's highly correlated when um, management research group has done their research with a behavior in their 360 tool that they call management focus. And what management focus is all about is, you know, being comfortable being a leader, really, that uh, I'm willing to take one for the team, uh, you know, management, high management focus behavior uses language like, um, we are going to, you know, we're, we, our team will take this on, wait, you can't do that to my team. You know, they're very, very team oriented, whereas people with lower management focus behavior are seen to be more like individual contributors. So they can be strong individual contributors, but they're not seen as overseeing a team. Controlling energy is that it's when you're high controlling, you are, you get a lot of energy from directing the efforts of other people. You like you know, being in charge, you so team leaders that I work with that are high on controlling, they put an emphasis on needing to have team meetings, needing to off, do offsite sessions, bringing people together. They really, um, you know, they they take the time to work with people and coach people, direct people, people who are lower on controlling, um, they will tend to move more towards individual work if given the opportunity. They will feel like, well, you know, these people are grown-ups. They can look after themselves. And so whenever I find a, a senior leader who's lower on controlling energy, often the complaint that will happen is that they're not dealing with issues within the team quickly enough or effectively. And so um thinking about where your energy uh, is for managing people. I think this is a really interesting one, um, especially with senior executives. It's okay if you've got a small team, but if you're getting into like very large numbers of people and you have very low controlling energy, um, chances are it's going to be kind of a tough, tough job for you to do if you've got really, really big scope. So that's the, the challenge ones. Was there anything that jumped out for you there, Joyce, in terms of connection to IDI or to um, Myers-Briggs? Yeah, I see a, a lot of the factors um, connecting back to the Myers-Briggs. Maneuvering, I could see like people with S-E-T-I, like ESTPs, mm. relating a lot to maneuvering. Mm. Uh, yeah, and with controlling, I think there might be a slight correlation to extroverted thinking, so mm -hmm. TE, which is a type of thinker trait. Yeah. Some of the, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. It'd be fun to kind of map all of this to the MBTI, I think. Yeah. Um, okay. So then the last one is maintaining. So this is, um, you know, how you sort of, well, it sounds like maintain your world. Like what are the energies um, that you use to keep your world predictable or fluid or whatever it is that's important to you? So the three under here, stability is the first one. So I kind of mentioned that a little bit earlier. So People who are high stability want predictability. So my husband's 95th percentile stability. I'm fifth percentile stability. He, for years, has wanted to go out on his own and start his own practice. He has never made it happen because then he will give you a million reasons why it's hard to do that. 
one of the terms he uses is golden handcuffs because he has a very steady job with good benefits and pay. High stability people want to know predictability. Low stability people, that is not the motivator. I quit my full-time job when I was the breadwinner. My husband hadn't worked in for three, for three years and we literally went from a six-figure salary to zero overnight. Um, I'm fifth percentile stability. That was a very stressful time in our marriage, I will say, when you've got a fifth percentile stability and a 95th percentile stability and uh, no income. Um, wouldn't recommend it, but that is sort of the difference. I think that, you know, um, I have a colleague of mine who's very high stability on my team. And, you know, anytime we're making an investment in the business, she starts to freak out because it's changing. It's changing the game. We're taking on risk. You know, it's, 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 she wants to know what's going to happen, right? So having plans and, and being clear on the plan is important for stability people. I can't change, you know, like doing a last minute vacation with my husband, like the night before, I would need to talk to him about that for two months before we actually did it. Like I couldn't launch it on him like the night before and say, Hey, let's go away for a week tomorrow. Right. Just would never work. Um, whereas for me, I'd be like, yeah, let's do it. Um, in terms of uh, the next one, independence, this is the amount of energy you get from flexibility and freedom and variety in your life. And so people with very high independence, um, it can, you know, an example would be, you know, having somebody else control your calendar for you, having somebody else uh, manage your day-to-day um, -day activities would be very difficult for a high independence person being told where they need to be when they need to be. Um, high independence people need a lot of time freedom and the ability to kind of drive that time freedom in the way that they want to drive it. People lower independence don't have that same need for time freedom. So interestingly, in large organizations, leaders with lower independence are actually more more um, suited in some cases to those very big senior executive type roles where you can't control like, you know, hey, you want to climb the ladder here, we need to move your family to France, a low independence person is going to be like, okay, let's, uh, that's part of the job. That's what I signed up for. Let's go. High independence people will have a much unless they want to go to France. Um, a much harder time accepting those kinds of things and will probably push more against it. Whenever I see high independence people in big companies, I always find that they're most successful when they have what I like to call their own sandbox. They have a place that, you know, maybe they're in a big company, but they run a smaller division and they're left alone to run that division the way they, they um, feel that they need to run it. So that's the independence category for me. I'm 95th percentile independence. Um, I need a huge amount of freedom. And, and that was really for me, like a micromanaging boss was never going to work. And I knew that early on, but also just any boss wasn't going to work for me. And so um, for me being an entrepreneur, that high independence with low stability was a good combo. Am I high creating? Right. So that was, um, you know, that's, that's what uh, motivated. Those were motivational energies that really supported me in making a move to entrepreneurship. And then the last one was is maintain in maintaining is one called irreproachability and irreproachability is an interesting one because when you're high irreproachability, you really have a way that you like to live your life. You have a set of rules and a code and a set of values and standards, and you're very committed to them. And it can look like a whole bunch of different things. So it could look like 
Um, like my father, um, I don't know how high he was in irreproachability, but there was certainly an aspect of him that he believed that um, only low-income families, children would go out to work and a wife's place should be in the home looking after the family. It was very difficult for him when his income couldn't support our family and my mom went out to work and also difficult for him when I wanted to get a summer job because I wanted a summer job because all of my friends had summer jobs. And so he took that very much as a, um, a, a not a failure, but it just, it really went against the grain of how he felt a male should be in order to be able to provide for his family because that was his belief system. So I feel like when the people that I've met who have higher approachability, they're very, they are very committed to a set of beliefs. Their fear sometimes is that they, they can be perceived as judgmental and maybe they are, but maybe, but more times than not, I find that it's more a judgment against themselves. If they have let themselves down, they will be very hard on themselves but also if other people cross a line with them, they are much quicker to, um, uh, I guess, put a line in the sand around what's acceptable to them and what's not acceptable to them. People who are lower irreproachability live much more in the gray. So they will see other sides to stories. They will, you know, give people the benefit of the doubt more easily. Um, they, as a result, you know, may not stand on convictions as much. Um, and they're kind of like, you know, higher approachability rules are there for a reason. Lower approachability rules are there to be broken, right? Really? Do we need that rule? I don't know, right? So that's sort of that lower irreproachability. And again, when we see this in combination, so I'll give you a, an interesting combo here. So if you have um, an individual who is very low on the affiliating energy, very high on some of the challenging energy, winning, maneuvering, controlling, and low on irreproachability. This is that individual whose energy is going to be all about what they want and winning at all costs and not being afraid to stamp over people as in, in order to get what they want. Because that is that rules that were made to broken. So an example from... Um, uh, like movies would be the movie, The Wolf of Wall Street. People who are engaged in Ponzi schemes, people who do that, that is people who are not at all thinking and have energy around other people <laughs> um, and are quite willing to break rules in order to win and get what they want and maneuver around people to get what they want, right? It's a totally different view when we see somebody who is extremely high on affiliating, high on those challenge and low on the irreproachability because what they are doing is rules are made for, to be broken if it's not in the benefit of my people or it's or or they will believe that there's a greater good out there that they are solving by not following the rules whereas the higher approachability people do tend to my husband's more mid-range on irreproachability and so we will argue about this because I'm actually very low um, we will argue about things that he feels very strongly about. And what he will say to me is, you just don't understand the situation. I always think, well, you're, you're just looking at through your very, this very specific lens that you have. Like he has a very big lens about loyalty. It's a very big lens. If somebody breaks loyalty, he is very, um, I don't want to say he's done with them, but that's a huge thing for him. Whereas I'll sort of go more to, 
well, I wonder why they did that. And maybe there was this circumstance and what's going on. So it's an interesting one. And, and I find with irreproachability, sometimes when people see that they've scored very high, it can often be a big unlock to them because they will see where they've made judgments and decisions about other people's choices or lifestyles or approaches. And often it, it can help them broaden um, a point of view um, on things that maybe they've limited themselves around. So that's irreproachability. And that is the IDI. That is amazing. <laughs> Thank you so much. It, it seems like people, you were mentioning if they're low in affiliating, high in challenging, and low in irreproachability, they tend to have traits of people in the dark triad. So that would be <laughs> Machiavellianism, mm -hmm. psychopathy, yes, and narcissism. Yes, yes, yeah. There are, there are definitely edges to that. And what's really interesting is, I hate to say this, but a lot of senior executives have that. That know? is true. The, the, where, you, where you see senior executives who do have more of that middle range irreproachability balance in there. Um, because, and if you think about it, and, and you know, there's that great movie several years ago about, um, you know, the corporation as a psychopath. I can't remember the title. I think that might even be the title or something like that. But um, it's it's because that's what gets rewarded. What gets rewarded is results. Drive results, win, right? Win for the shareholders, win for the, you know, investors. Um, and even though a lot of companies say people are their most important asset, what gets rewarded is winning. And so the people who tend to, like the, the benefit of being lower in the affiliating energy is that you are willing to make those tough calls. Like you will say, yeah, we got to lay off all these people. Yeah, we've got to close this plant. Yeah, we've got to do this. And you're able to do that because you're getting your energy from the win. You're getting your energy from, you know, the excelling or raising the bar or whatever, the other places that you can get energy from. People who are extremely high on that affiliating energy will have a much tougher time making those calls on people in particular um, because of, um, where they come from. Like, it's interesting, the CEO that I'm coaching right now, who's extremely high on the affiliating energies. Um, I mean, he's lovely because he, he really passionately believes in helping his people. And, uh, the, it's funny because the complaint that his direct reports have right now is that he, he requires them all to meet with him two hours a week just to talk about them, right? They were like, oh my God, I'm too busy. I don't have time to talk about myself for two hours with my boss. Um, but he's just so passionate about wanting to help them. But on the flip side, he's got a, there's a performance issue within his team and his, um, you know, He's got a loyalty piece, you know, he's higher on irreproachability around things. He's very high on this affiliating. And, you know, one of the questions I asked him was, I said, do you ever feel sometimes you hold on to people for too long? And he's like, yeah, I do. Like he will eventually make the tough call, but it's hard for, because he's, he's like, he wants to help people and he wants to, you know, um, like for him, part of the story he has about being a great leader is developing talent, right. And being able to develop talent. And so I think how, he, and he's, and he's high on excelling. So it's almost like that combo of going, I haven't been able to help this person. So somehow I failed. And so therefore 
you know, maybe I should try and coaching, coaching this person for a little bit longer when in fact, everybody else around the person is going, this guy is not cutting it. He needs to go. Right. So that's where the energies start to play out in interesting ways for people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They say that our contribution is our compulsion too. So at first the giving energy is his contribution to the world. And then when he overdoes it, it's a compulsion that kind of makes other people feel <laughs> a little, uh, let's do much. <laughs> yeah, hundred percent. And it's funny because it can, it shows up. So I find the giving energy such an interesting one because I'm high giving. So is my husband, but we're both high independence. And what I notice in our relationship is like high independence and high giving. Um, when you put those two together and you're the high independence person, people trying to help you can feel like interference. So it feels like the person's interfering because you like to do things your way. I like helping other people, but being helped because I'm also lower on receiving um, is difficult for me. And so with my husband, it's really hard because, you know, you're married, it's your partner in life, all of that kind of good stuff. But I notice for us, he's, he's not great at getting my help and I'm not great at getting his help. And that's actually where we'll get into, um, uh, you know, friction is that he's wanting to help me because he wants to give, <laughs> but I'm like, stop interfering in my business. And so I have to be really intentional about letting him give, right? Really intentional about letting him do things for me, right? Because it would not be my, it doesn't feel comfortable for me. That's fascinating. It's interesting how we can use different models to explain different behaviors. So mm. if I were to look at what you said through the lens of the Enneagram right now, I would see it as you being a seven wing eight. So mm. it's basically the eight wing is showing up where it's like, I want to give to you, but I'm independent. So I don't need it myself. I can supply for myself. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And with irreproachability, I would imagine like a type one in the Enneagram, they would score very high on that. They're like, you know, it's very important to stay to these certain principles that we have. It's very important. And so high irreproachability for type ones, likely. Yeah. Yeah, and I totally see that. And you know, what's interesting about that is I have another seven on my team. And, and it was funny when she, she came out as a seven, I came out as a seven. Um, because we're similar in some ways, but we're also extremely different. But her approachability is incredibly high. And that is that piece of the one side. <laughs> it's not the wing, but, um, you know, at, you know, when you're at your worst, or you're um, underdeveloped, or whatever it is when you go to the one from the seven. And um, I think that's interesting because she's a, still a young leader, like she's still young in her career. And I always think when you're in your 20s, you're really unpacking and exploring who you are and and um, diving into that. But I can certainly see that in her when she goes to that side of the one um, is that irreproachability comes out. And for her, because she's very high on the affiliating energies, it's a lot to do with when people have let her down. So if you promise to do something and you don't do it, it's a really big thing for her. She's very unforgiving. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. It, it is quite funny. <laughs> and so you mentioned how you scored really low on stability. 
So there are two factors in the MBTI that they would explain that to, both the intuition sensing and the judging and perceiving. So basically judges will want more stability than perceivers, but mm -hmm. also intuitives tend to also not need that much stability too. So mm -hmm. to be an NP is to like double on not needing stability. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Whereas my husband's an NJ, right? And so he comes at a super high stability. Um, and I always thought he was, as a J, I, I sort of had connect, I'd always wondered about the J being connected to the structuring piece, because I always perceived J's as being way more structured and organized than a P. And yet he's not like he's, he's sort of more of that mid range around structure, but he's higher than me in terms of energy. So that's where there's a little bit of a difference there. But he definitely um, what I noticed about him because he works um, he would love that I'm talking about him, by the way. Um, he, he's, uh, he works in a hospital environment. He's a psychotherapist. And so he works in a very small office with no window. And he has no control over he, who he sees. It's, you know, first come, first serve. And those are the people who he's going to be working with. And what he struggles with when I hear him complain about his job there are two factors. One, he's in an office with no window. <laughs> and two, he has to work with people who don't necessarily want therapy, need therapy, are ready for therapy. And he has zero control over who he's seeing. And so it's funny because he will often question, maybe I shouldn't be in this field. And yet his giving is so high, his, um, you know, receiving is so high. Um, his expressing is really high. He has a lot of really high side energies that map to the work he does but his independence is 90th percentile and i i have been saying to him for years it's not about the work it's about the way you're doing the work and if he had his own private practice then he would have more control he'd be able to choose who he could work with but that really rubs against his stability energy because the thought of going out on his own and doing that is too much so he's in this and I, I have another guy that I coach too who's interesting in that he has that same independence energy and stability energy and it's such a push-pull like he he's in this big organization he doesn't want to do all the things he's being asked to do he wants to do his own thing and I literally talk to him once a year and every year we have the exact same conversation and it's always about him going out and starting his own thing and he's always wanting me to reassure him that he's going to be okay <laughs> I can't tell you that, but what can you do? You know, so if you're a high stability person and you want to, you know, move into entrepreneurship, I think there's ways that you can do it, but you have to think about how do I create stability for my, create that sense of stability so that when I am in a building or it's unstable at first, or it's unknown at first, what are the things that I need to do and in, in, put in place in order to be able to get to the point that I'm through that startup phase of a, of a business, you know, mm -hmm. I forgot to mention too, the stability could also be correlated with introversion and extroversion. So mm -hmm. extroverts tend to be more likely to take risks because the external world is more of the real world to them. So they'll have a greater degree of flexibility and adaptability with the external world. Whereas mm -hmm. introverts, introverts, the internal world is the real world. So it can cause a shock when they go out into the external world. And so it can have 
it can cause introverts on a whole to have a little bit of a higher stability score if you were to put them on a graph. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Fascinating. Klein, you mentioned this really great point about how people who have high winning energy during COVID, they, they tend to see everything as a game to mm -hmm. be won. Mm -hmm. So they treat that as a game too. So I was wondering if you could go into that. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I've noticed, because I work with a lot of senior executive teams, and if I think about their profile, they, and I mentioned it a bit earlier, you know, they sort of have this lower affiliating energy and these higher challenging energies, right? So they're maneuvering, winning, they often have high excelling and high enduring. And that's one of the key ingredients, right? Is this, it's this combination of not just winning, but enduring. And so um, what I've been seeing since COVID struck, like when, when it started back in March, there was so much, everybody was in shock. There was adrenaline. We got to get people working from home. That on its own was like, a, you know, that's a challenge. Let's get that going. So that kind of juiced up all these, you know, senior people. Um, and then we were sort of into the summer months and figuring out, are we going to go back? What's happening? What I've noticed now, almost since the fall, actually, is that there's been a shift in organization, senior level leadership in that they're kind of like, okay, this is the way it is. And we still got to deliver results. We've still got to win at the business. We've still got to do all these things. And so they are plowing ahead. Um, and yet the reality of what's happening underneath them, and particularly if you've got an employee base that has young children, um, people that are isolated, there's a lot of, so you're seeing a ton of conversation right now about resilience, mental health. Um, there's, I have so many friends that work in that space that are so busy right now because they're just being asked to do all kinds of sessions and talks. And it's what's kind of interesting, I think, um, that executive teams need to recognize, or if you are a senior leader and you get this energy off of, you know, like, hey, let's stick at it. Um, for the people that don't get their energy there, it's very difficult. And I think we're going to see a big exodus of people. And we are seeing it already. Like I, I read somewhere that, um, or I heard somewhere recently that in the U.S., 100% of the job losses in December were women. And those are women who are making choices to stay at home with their kids right now. And so what, and there is another stat about COVID has set the women's movement back three years or three decades, or I don't know, there was some, it was some number, right? That was because in the home, it's still not equal balance. And it's often falling on the mother to do the teaching and everything else. And so I think that is something that senior leaders need to be aware that while they're getting energy from, hey, COVID, this is a great challenge, we're going to fight through, let's, like, every company I've talked to have not got flat number expectations this year, we're in a pandemic, they've increased their targets, they've increased their budgets, like they would in any other year. That for me is, is where your collective energy, when you're a team, your awareness about what that's driving and then the implications of that in the people below you and what, it, and what that does within a culture um, is super critically important to explore and understand. And so uh, this company I'm working with right now, I'm quite worried about them because the senior team has such a drive, such high standards and energy. 
and they're not really high at all on the affiliating energy at all. Mm -hmm. And so they tend to dismiss it. So even though there's lots of bubbling up below about people being exhausted and overwhelmed and workload is too much and all of this kind of stuff, they're discounting it. Right. And I'm, I, and I think it's a hard, like you have to be so diligent um, as leaders in terms of really understanding, okay, we have a bias here. We need to kind of create more balance. So um, that's, that's one of kind of the interesting things. Um, yeah. Like if you get a juice from tough stuff, like, I mean, in many ways I'm high enduring, I'm high excelling, I'm high maneuvering, I'm high winning. Um, I'm high creating and I'm high, I'm fairly high on the affiliating energies, the COVID for me and my business took a very big hit, but those energies are what powered me through. And it was funny because we were talking as a team a couple of months ago and we always give each other um, recognition and I'm always interested what the team says about me, like what they appreciate about me. And uh, all of them talked about my optimism and my endurance and the fact that I was saying to them, we were going to get through this. Right. And I think that is because there is a part of me that when you tell me I can't do something, I'm going to go do it. I'm going to prove you wrong. I'm going to go do it. And I really feel that's that combo of enduring, winning, maneuvering, like excelling, like that is my combo. And it serves me well in entrepreneurship because it's a very rocky road all the time. Now, COVID or not, you're always having ups and downs. So if you don't get energy from those ups and downs, um, it, could, it can be tough. Yeah. So, so fantastically said. What you said at the end about how, if you tell me I can't do it, then I will prove you wrong and I'll do it. Mm. In the Myers-Briggs, that would be associated with EP energy. So they'd mm. say it's like, don't control me, bro energy. Yeah. It's the energy that likes freedom the energy that likes to not be premature, prematurely limited by people. Mm, yeah. Mm, very yeah. much so. Very much so. I think it's always been for me. I think it's why, you know, as a teenager, my father was such a thorn in my side because he was so controlling and so dominant and didn't let me do anything that I, I was like, and that's where my maneuvering came from because I would sneak around and I was sneaking about and I had, you know, fake babysitting clients so I could get out of the house or fake sleepovers. So I could go, you know, you know, do things that I probably shouldn't have been doing, but it was all as a result of, you know, so I can really see, and I think that's the interesting thing with the IDI is often you can really go back and and see the things that served you at a certain period in your life and why that energy was there. And I mean, for me, maneuvering was so much about my independence was so high, but the way to get what I wanted as a teenager was to be sneaky, right? It was to like find ways around this very controlling um, father that I had, right? Um, now, the hard thing about high maneuvering, like the biases, the mindset biases that come into play for us, you know, with when you're a high maneuvering person, trust is very hard. You know, you don't tend to trust people. You always think there's a game at play, you know, and that makes it difficult in, in relationships um, often, whereas the people lower maneuvering are much more what you see is what you get. They don't have time for you know, that kind of, um, you know, game playing, my, my husband's a low maneuvering person. So uh, like how it plays out for us is like whenever, when we were selling our, our first house, there were some problems with the house, 
But my point of view is there's problems with all houses. You don't need to tell everybody about the problems with the house. Whereas my husband would be going, well, you know, we got a leak here and this is there. And I'm like, what are you doing? You don't need to say that to people like they're, they'll find that out. Right. And so his irreproachability, low maneuvering, my lower approachability, high maneuvering to me is that was just totally on display right there. Right. And probably somewhere in the middle is where you need to be. Like I need to be less afraid to tell the truth and put things out there. And he probably sometimes needs to hold his cards in certain situations a little closer to the chest because he's often will feel taken advantage of. Right. Or he doesn't feel like he's, his voice is being heard because he's not playing quote unquote playing those games. Right. So that's fascinating. Yeah. So people who are high in maneuvering, they operate off of the fundamental philosophy, like there are secrets up everyone's sleeve or something like that. Yeah, kind of that it's good not to tell everybody everything like knowledge is power. Be careful who you expose yourself to. So the trust piece really comes in and it's kind of like like with winning people who are high winning think everything's a competition you know, everything's a competition. And, and when you're again, when you're in that 85 and above on the scale, that's when it really, that's when you're really in the mindset bias piece of this, because you're, you're, um, it's just, it's like, it's the way you see the world. So before I did the IDI, I've been married for 20 years. And um, we, my husband never wants to play games with me like Monopoly or, and I, you know, I've never kind of understood that. I'm like, what I, he goes, you're brutal. He goes, when you win, you're brutal. And I'm like, what, what are you talking about? I don't think I'm that bad, but, but then observing now since now seeing the idea and how high I'm winning and how low he is and all that stuff. I'm like, I can see how he would feel that way about me. Whereas when I'm with my high winning friends, it's not like that at all. We just all think we're having fun and, and, uh, it's great, but it's so much is about, um, you know, your, your perception. It's like the giving, you know, like um, for my, my husband, who's um, as a therapist, when he doesn't feel like he's helping somebody, it's very difficult for him because he's this 95th percentile giving person. He needs to feel like he's helping. And, and the problem for that is people who are high giving think everybody wants your help. No, they don't. No, they do not. Not everybody wants your help. Some people want to be left alone, right? And so um, in organizations, we'll see that where people feel like they're, you know, you know, being interfered with or, you know, somebody's trying too hard to be helpful. And and then the flip is true. Like what I, what I find, I find giving interesting because people who are high giving, they perceive people who are low giving as, not being empathetic, not, not being intuitive enough. Like, why didn't they see that I needed help? Whereas the lower giving person would say, well, I was right here. You could have asked me the high giving person is like, but I shouldn't have needed to ask you. You should have known that I needed help. Right. And so that's often the, the disconnect that happens, but it's the bias of the high giving person that everybody should be proactive about um, giving help and, and helping others. Um, which is interesting, right? 
it's interesting. It's like our motivational energy. It creates what we expect of other people too, because it comes so naturally to us that we mm. assume that other people are like us as well. Mm-hmm. And, and so what personality inventories are so great at teaching us about ourselves. It's not, not everyone is like us. When you were teaching us about the IDI, you made us do a thumbs up uh, mm. type of exercise mm-hmm. where you would ask us questions like, do you enjoy speaking in front of 500 people? Yeah. And then if you do, put your thumbs up <laughs> and then everyone would answer radically different. Mm. And what this teaches us is that we tend to superimpose our own way of acting onto people mm-hmm. without knowing it. Mm-hmm. And so it's great to know that it might not come naturally to other people. And and it's kind of like, it teaches you the philosophy of non-judgment because not everyone operates like us. Our motivational energies can also tell us where we're, we might be feeling depressed or why we, why we might be feeling dystymic. Mm-hmm. If we're not in the areas that are using our strengths, you know, using our motivational energies, the things that put us into flow, it can make you have some sort of signs through your mental health too so it's good to keep in check too if you feel kind of sad it might be because your greatest talents or the things that give you energy aren't being tapped into and as a byproduct you will be feeling those emotions and so i don't know i I just think it's so cool how our motivational energies can tell us what gives us battery juice (laughs) Yeah, I know. And I think you're hitting on a really important thing. And this is this is what I really noticed in our work. Like, um, if you believe in strengths being what you're good at, but also what you're passionate about, that passion piece is the motivational energy to do that work, right? So if a true strength is the intersection of passion and capability, then um, you do see a lot of correlations when we look at some of these IDI with their strengths, right? So what, because where we tend to have a lot of energy, we invest our time. It, this doesn't tell me like if you're high on interpreting, it doesn't tell me if you're a really smart person. And the fact that you dig into details means that you're, you know, somebody who's uh, super intellectually a genius. That's not what it's telling me. All it's telling me is that you like that. But what I've noticed in the work that I do is that, There's definite correlation between somebody's motivational energy and what they naturally are attracted to within a job and and what they're naturally then tend to put more energy and effort into, which helps them get better, right? Like it's it's just sort of the, the connecting of those pieces. And I think the thing that you said that I just wanted to um uh kind of circle back on is this notion of just because you don't get energy from something doesn't mean somebody else doesn't get a ton of energy from something. And so what I find like within our team, because our team obviously has all done this tool, we talk about it, we share it, we know each other's energies, da, 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 da. And we can have really open, candid conversations about what do you want to do more of that better aligns to your energy, right? And what are the things that, you know, I can really see you struggling with that are going to always be kind of a hard struggle because, you can, you can, I'm not a really big believer in finding a job where you have to be stretching your energy all the time. I think the purpose of life is to get alignment, right? And it's to, you get one chance at this world, one chance at this given life. And so how do you get into flow with it? And I think that's what the IDI can really help you 
do like all of these tools, like Myers-Briggs and the Enneagram and all the things we've talked about, is it really helps you get into better flow with your core purpose. What are you here to do? How can you get up in the morning and not be depressed and not be like a, you know, golden handcuff slave to the grind? Um, how can you uh, really live your life in a way where you're maximizing your talents and your gifts? And that at the end of every day, um, even if it was a full busy day, you feel good about it. You don't feel exhausted and depleted. You know, yesterday was a hard day for me because I was doing a lot of things where I had to do a lot of thinking and listening. And I was going through people's plans. I had to look at a um, a legal document for a client. I had a lot of things that I was, you know, kind of doing that were really not my most fun things to do. And so by the end of yesterday, I had a really big headache. <laughs> you know, I came out of yesterday going, oh my gosh. Um, whereas the day before, I had a very busy day again, but I was doing a lot of, um, I had a couple of group sessions. I had um, a talk that I gave. I interviewed somebody who I um, really always have a good time with. And so by the end of the day, I was energized and I can really see the difference. And so for me, one of the things I try and do to kind of make this really real for myself is I really try and um, think about my week and think about where I can control what I put in in my days, that I spread out my high energy things and my low energy things. I try not to um, book too many low energy activities um, in a day. Yesterday, it was other people that put things into my calendar. So my independence thing was also being triggered. But I looked and went, oh my gosh, why do I have three of these things back to back? Right. So I think that's where understanding our energy, it really does tie into all of the you know, the work around strengths and the work around finding your your own core purpose, which is so it's so important for all of us, I think. Yeah, these tools teach us, they hint at our true self, or they hint at our greater purpose in life. They, they're a watery reflection of what we're meant to give in, in our, our time here. Mm -hmm. And I really love that. And thank you so much, Glyne, for coming out and for offering so, so much amazing insight onto the IDI for explaining it in a very easy to follow way, but still keeping all the theoretical complexity there. Um, I really enjoy you making all these fun connections throughout them. Like, oh, if you have giving and you have independence, it results in this. <laughs> so you're combining two parts of it and you're making a, a new flavor. And so I, I love that variety you've given us in this inventory. You show us how there's so many ways to combine these, these motivational energies. In, in a way that's interesting and keeps this fun. Yeah. So, yeah. well, you're welcome. No, no, it's been a pleasure talking to you. And I've loved how you've also layered in um, the Enneagram and MBTI into this conversation. So I learned a lot from you um, just getting those connections. So thank you for that, Joyce. That was really great. Yeah. Well, thank you for your giving energy and giving me your time and just showing me this whole presentation that you so beautifully craft crafted. Thank you for the knowledge you bestowed on my audience. And so Glein has books and I'll link them below. Go check Glein out. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Joyce. It was great being here. And uh, yeah. I always love talking about the IDI. So thank you for giving me that gift today. Yeah. 
thank you for <laughs> thank you for showing us how these tools can really give us the self-awareness we we can have to better our lives and so i i really appreciate that i will say with your last comment about how doing paperwork and like detailed work it makes you like lower down in energy it can also correlate back to the myers-briggs too about how like it's very sensory to deal with details and so it can kind of take away your energy too <laughs> totally i always like whenever people send me emails and i see can you please review this for me i am the worst procrastinator on things like that i just and i always think why am i procrastinating on this it's like just a letter i have to read or it's just an article that somebody's written but i don't know uh, too many I'd details. They verbally say it to me and then i could react but <laughs> <laughs> that's lovely yeah so thank you for your time thank you for your amazing energy you you really offer a really great uh pizzazz to your presentations so i was captivated the whole time so thank you so much <laughs> yeah and thank you everyone for tuning in and i'll see you all in the next episode bye